Well, happy December to everyone. And we get a, to do, um, address a good king, the last of the good kings, for the next several weeks. So that'll be a little happy circumstance for us. Um, the Lord has good plans for us as far as that is concerned. <clears throat> I'm suffering the teacher's blight right now, you know, the, the whole, I feel fine, I just can't talk. So, <laughs> um, so uh, Betsy's doing the best you can to keep me well-miked and uh, able to function today. We'll be in Second Chronicles chapter 34, Second Chronicles 34, and let's pray and entrust our to the Lord's care today. Father, we're grateful for times of good, times of refreshing, times of leadership that demonstrate uh, conclusively that apart from you we can do nothing, that apart from righteousness, um, sin is a reproach to any nation, and it degrades and destroys, and yet you are tender towards those who would seek your face. So may we uh, be a people who are continuing to grow no matter what stage of life we find ourselves in. And may we be encouraged by your word this day to walk with you with humility and perfection of heart. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Everyone loves a good quest. Something in us revels at the thought of finding something, um, some kind of a treasure, some kind of a thing of significant value, particularly after a long search, particularly if nobody else was able to find it ahead of us. Today's text guides us towards a quest that's worth launching. Second Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 3. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Um, and Betsy, my, uh, this is not actually advancing right now. There we go. Good. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. In 2010, Forrest Fenn, a wealthy art dealer from New Mexico had a bright idea. He was tired of watching people just kind of sit around and commiserate with each other about the recession that started in 2008 and it lasted for a couple of years. And he saw so many people collecting government benefits but not actually doing anything. And he thought, well, what can I do to get people off their couches and out in the outdoors? And he loved hiking, he loved the outdoors, even though he was an elderly gentleman at the time. So he had a bright idea. I'm going to take a bronze chest and fill it with treasure and put it somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, That's just a small little geographic region for people to cover. But then he also wrote a poem with clues to guide people to the quest. This was 2010. The chest was finally found in 2020. Ten years of thousands of people scouring the Rocky Mountains, poem in hand, looking for these things. Um, As of 2017, the governments of New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado begged Fenn. They're like, please call off the search. Go collect your own chest and be done with it. Because five people died 
trying to find this treasure. Um, so in 2017, he published this big you know, national broadcast. All right, people, I'm an 80-year-old man. I did not scale a cliff face or go into some kind of incredibly dangerous location to hide this chest. He said, I got out of my car, walked with the bronze chest as an 80-year-old man, and set it down. And like, so, no, if you're, in, if you're in some incredibly dangerous area, you're in the wrong place. Don't do that. But here's his poem. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where and hint of treasures new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt, and take it in the canyon down, not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of brown, for there it's no place for the meek, the end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease, but tarry scant with marvel gaze. Just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answer, I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you're brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. People will risk life and limb to find certain treasures. But oftentimes the same people will not lift a finger to acquire or even seek eternal life. Now, his treasure was worth finding. I always I wondered, okay, so how much was it? Well, he put in 265 American gold eagles, which are about $2,060 an ounce right now each. Um, ancient Middle Eastern coins, gold Middle Eastern coins, several thousand years old. Hundreds of gold nuggets, two of which were as big as hen's eggs. An antique carved Chinese jade figures, necklaces, jewelry, and other gemstones. When he put it in, in 2010, it was worth about $5 million. By the time it was found, it was double or triple that. So it was, it was worth finding. But the issue still is, again, that thousands of people went after it with just this poem in hand to find something that, if mishandled, could be spent and squandered in just a short period of time, and regardless of which, cannot be carried with them into eternity. And some of those same individuals, unfortunately, again, will not lift a finger to seek God's face. The scripture text in front of us today tells us that because God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, search out the will of the Lord, regardless of stage of life. doesn't matter. Keep seeking the face of God. And I mean, really seek it. Value his testimonies and his will. See, you're really supposed to be paying attention. The Lord's going to make it. Make sure of that. My belt clip did not hold. Are we still good or did we lose it? Okay, very good. Try again. So seek out the will of the Lord. Earnestly um, look to him because his testimonies really are more valuable than gold. The passage begins by telling us to seek the person of God himself directly and seek him persistently in the process of seeking him directly. Josiah, according to the record of Scripture, never turned away from the Lord. The last good king that we saw 
Hezekiah did also seek the Lord and was righteous in so much of his life, but he also at some point was lifted up in pride, the scriptures say. And because of his being lifted up in pride and his showing Babylon all the treasures of the people and of the land, um, God was going to lead Babylon against the land. But Josiah never turned away from the Lord. No sin is recorded in the scripture in regard to his life. A couple weeks from now, we'll have the opportunity to discuss the end of his life. And there were some issues, there's some problems, there's a lack of wisdom there in a choice that he made. But not a direct sin. Not an attack on the Lord, not turning away from the face of the Lord, not being lifted up in pride. He, according to this testimony, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, walked in the days of his father, and I love this last one, he did not turn aside from it to the right hand or the left. He's not swerving, as we often do in life, back and forth, into righteousness, into sin, into righteousness, into sin. The scriptures say he stayed focused. And again, I I know there are sins to every single human life, but apparently they were of the common variety and so quickly repented that the Lord chose not even to record them for us. He stayed focused on the Lord his God. And one of the things that amazes me is that the testimony of our culture and of Humanity worldwide runs something like this. You know, it's the influence in your background that really determines what you are. Okay, so who was dad? Ammon. So wicked that God judged him in two years. After a two-year reign. And he was assassinated. Ah, who was grandpa? I bet he had good grandparental influence, you know. Put, put him on his lap, taught him the ways of the Lord. No, grandpa was Manasseh whose reign was so sustained and filled with evil that God will not turn away judgment from Judah. And when does Josiah come to the king, kingship, the kingdom? When he's eight years old. Far before a, a human being can exercise profound wisdom. And yet the Lord marked him out to be his own. And at the age of 16, the scriptures record, eight years into his reign, he began to seek the Lord With his whole heart, he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. The testimony of the passage is also seek God immediately. Josiah didn't wait. Now, I understand there had to be some maturing of his mind and of his thinking from from raw immaturity of an eight-year-old to some kind of sense and maturity that even a teenager already can possess. But when we think of teens in society today... Is anybody thinking, ah, maturity? Yeah, teenage, especially mid-teen, 16-year-old, hmm, that's maturity. No, we kind of give them a a little room of freedom, and now we've, we've moved into the 20s, and you've heard of tweens, right? Where you get to act as if you're as immature and ignorant as a teenager, but all the way up until you're almost 30 years old. That's what our society is doing. So the marriage age is pushing into the late 20s right now. The average age of first marriage, late 20s. Really settling down and acting responsibly, late 20s, early 30s. And the scriptures tell us here already that as soon, essentially, as the Lord made him cognizant of even the opportunity to do so, Josiah began to seek the face of the Lord. He sought the Lord persistently all the days of his life. He sought the Lord immediately as soon as he had 
legitimate opportunity to do so. He began an intentional, intentional quest. And the Lord is going to respond to that quest by answering him. Perhaps the biggest quest that most men undertake in their entire lives is courting their wife. Both of those have certain characteristics similar to what Josiah has already exhibited. Persistence. Persistent. Most of the time, it's not a once and done. You meet, you propose, she's like, oh, good. You know, we just met 15 minutes ago. Oh, sure, I'll, I'll marry you. It takes some kind of persistence. And, you know, we, we love regaling people with tales of courtship and marriage and things like that. So, and my students always want to know. So I'll tell them how, yeah, on the, on the way to meet me the first time, my wife turned around and started back to her dorm because I'd asked her to go to lunch. But I called her. She didn't know me. I didn't really know her. I, had, I just knew of her family. So I called her, you know, would you go to lunch with me? Okay, I'll go to lunch with you, whatever. Halfway there, she said, no, this is a horrible idea. You know, blind date. And just, no, I'm not. And then she stopped halfway back to her dorm and thought, my roommates are never going to let me live this down. Besides, it's just, I mean, I agreed it's not the right thing. to. I'll go, you know, meet him one time. And then she met me and was like, okay, it, He was okay, a little weird, (laughs) a little nerdy, okay, a lot nerdy, okay. Um, He wasn't an axe murderer or anything like that, but not exactly a fantastic person. And, and, you know, women have an incredibly civilizing influence on us males. Just, Just yesterday, again, as I was cleaning the house, I was looking around going, you know, if my wife weren't around, 50% of this would go out because I am not cleaning it. I'm like, there would be no knickknacks whatsoever. There'd be no decorations. I'm like, I am happy to have bare windowsills, bare walls. Not, you know, I vacuum the floor once every... And then we uh, <laughs> dust periodically uh, and so on. Um, huge civilizing influence. So, you know, a woman comes and meets a complete barbarian at one of those first dates. And he's pretending like he's not a barbarian, but he really is. And it takes some persistence in this quest. And some of you had to repeat the quest because you dated serially. You know, you found one one person, dated for a while, and then you dated another person for a while. So there's persistence in that. The seeking immediately is something I'm I'm still at work on uh, all my men in seminary about because... They're like, yeah, someday I'll start dating. I'm like, no, someday is like today. Now is the appointed time. Today is the day. Isn't And am I right, Dr. Yeagley? I mean, that's exactly what they are. And you're like, date. You're never going to have access to such nice young ladies in the rest of your life. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and keep pursuing him. There's always more to find out about him. Uh, in the middle of this week, and this, was, this is kind of by the board, it's not even the passage that we're addressing here, but in the middle of this week, I was reading some passages in Isaiah in my own devotions, and I ran across Isaiah 32. It's the first time in my life I realized that the psalm, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, comes directly from Isaiah 32. I never saw it. I'm like, how could I read this chapter of the Bible every year and not see. Now, they've, they've swapped out Jesus for the king because it talks about the king is this. But he's looking forward to the messianic king, and that is Jesus. So the psalm writer just pulls in Jesus. But Jesus is that rock in a weary land, and it goes on to talk about the stream that flows from him and the shade that he provides and so on. 
there's always more to quest after in our knowledge of God. Reading the scripture over and over again and drawing near to him repeatedly because I I get so far away from him so quickly. So be persistent about seeking the Lord and be immediate about seeking the Lord. You say, if if you have, we've forgotten, if we have wandered, fine, right now, fix the problem. Draw near, look for him again, and he is ready to be found. I'm going to skip a couple verses here. Because there's a portion of the testimony about Josiah that starts in his early years, but he also accomplishes it after our text as well. And I'm going to merge those for next week, Lord willing, and focus instead on verses 8 through 17 now. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, 18th year of his reign, so we've gone on a little ways at this point. When he had cleansed the land and the house... He sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to carpenters and builders to buy cord, stone, and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let to go to ruin. Quick aside, any of you watch that? Um, There there are a couple of different series, but they're like after man or after 50 years type shows. Uh, they're fascinating. They're, they're one of these like virtual reality type shows, but they show what happens to cities if they are just let to go. And they actually go into factories. They're automobile factories. One of my favorite was this. A, a state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line automobile factory in Michigan. And it was just abandoned. Okay? The, the particular company itself completely shut down. It's not Ford or Chrysler or one of these. It's still in existence. It completely shut down. And it showed, it shut down 50 years ago. Let's go back to the factory and see what it looks like. And you're like, was this ever even dwelt in? It's a complete ruin after 50 years. Well, that's what has happened to the temple of the Lord. Manasseh, Ammon, ruin and wreck has occurred over just the process of time, besides all the, the, the deliberate destruction of it that occurred out of malice and wickedness. Okay, so back to our text here. In the middle, the kings of Judah had let it go to ruin. And the men that did the, men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jahath and Obadiah the, uh, the Levites of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and, of, and Meshulam, the sons of the Kohathites, to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skilled with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all the work or all who did the work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. Now, I'm reading this quickly, but make sure you recognize God put all of this information in there on purpose. All of those details are significant. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Why is that significant? Josiah sought the Lord and what was found. 
God does not keep himself afar off for those who are genuinely seeking him. But something that was long lost to the pages of history was rediscovered, and God gave his word back to his people again when they saw it. They have found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered, and they said that, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. So what is the testimony of this section? Seek the honor of God's house. Seek the honor of God's house. Seek his person, but also seek the honor of his house. Honor God's work with foresight, verses 8 to 12. And notice that what uh, Josiah did to begin with is he appointed capable people. There's some kind of depth of power. Look at the officials that Josiah assigned. This is the equivalent of the chief of staff. What president of the United States has ever taken his highest ranking officials, his personal chief of staff, the, the White House people that surround him and are, again, his highest appointed, most trusted advisors, and sends them on a mission like, hey, go repair that church down there. But that's what he did. He sends out an entire list of his officials to go pursue the work of the Lord, which means if he's sending his most trusted officials, he's giving oversight to God's work intentionally. There's a strong representation of the king with those who are involved. He provided sufficient material in verses 9 through 11. And he also asked them to look out people with integrity at the early part of verse 12. So we honor God's work with foresight, that is preparation and planning. We also honor God's work with oversight. This is that long intermediate section that we read quickly because it's a lot of little details that don't seem significant to us. But who really looked over the work? Who exercised oversight over the work? Gave us specific people's names, and then it said that they were of the sons of Merari and the sons of the Kohathites. And like, well, who are these? Time to get out your um, concordance and or commentary and look it up. Who are the sons of Merari and the Kohathites? These are people that God had appointed in many, many years past to oversee his house to take care of it, to protect it, to provide for it. Numbers chapter 3. And the appointed guard duty of the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and all their accessories. All the service connected with these. Also the pillars around the court with their bases, the pegs, and the cords. Now, we've moved from the tabernacle to the temple. But it was the sons of Merari that were in charge of the superstructure. It says there, the bars, the pillars, the bases, the structure of God's house. So when Josiah needs people to oversee the reconstruction of the temple, he looks out the exact people that God had appointed in the first place and says, you were entrusted this charge. Take it up again. Rise up, anyone who is faithful. Seek out the Lord. Do his work. But he's appointing individuals who are directly connected, according to the scriptures, 
with the work of the temple. And you can go on with the Kohathites similarly were appointed. The Kohathites were singers primarily. You say, why were they involved? Because they're Levites who had part of the care, the worship elements of the temple. And it was valuable to Josiah to have them involved as well. Third, we honor God with insight. And it was moderately coincidental. I I noticed a couple of these. So once you find two, you have to go with three, right? So you have foresight, oversight, and insight. He recognized the providence and power of God in verses 14 to 17 and the value of his word. Serving God with insight is this. You find a weather-beaten book in the process of cleaning out a temple. And if you're not acting with care and attention, you don't give that weather-beaten, hidden scroll the weight and significance. You don't invest it with the value that it already has. Now, it has value inherently, but you don't treat it with that value unless you have insight. And so it was significant, again, that Josiah is searching out the right kind of people, doing the right kind of work, so that when the right people discovered this scroll, they knew what it was. And they didn't just throw it on the the slag heap with everything else that was being cleaned out of the temple and burned with fire in the Kidron Valley. No, they see what this is. They begin to unroll it, and they realize the significance and value of the find that they have just uncovered. And they're almost giddy with excitement here as they carry the scroll to Josiah. So the application for us does pertain to both the spiritual house of God then and the physical house of the Lord. The reality is every physical plant, including this one in which we sit and stand today, wears down if it's not cared for. And part of our worship, assuming our ability, is to do whatever we're able to do to care for God's house, just to make it a place of respect and something that glorifies God even by, again, the physical property. And you say, it's not all about the property. Ultimately, it's about our heart and our worship of God. A lot of people have ornate structures and complete deadness of heart. But it is also a false dichotomy to say, let's focus exclusively on the heart and we don't care what the building looks like because that's not how God's people who were most faithful to him in the scriptures acted. Josiah did work first on the heart to seek the law of the Lord his God in the first place, to walk in the ways of the Lord. But then he also beautified the Lord's house. So operate with care and attention. And part of that insight comes through simple things like your responsibility to select those who would help lead the church. It's not a benign or insignificant thing when you are given a list of deacons or when the the opportunity for new deacons comes available and they, they say, okay, you as a congregation look out those who are best qualified to help serve. And I know it slips our minds. It's not way up there in terms of our attention, but maybe it should be. Seeking out the care and the oversight of God's house so that what the Lord is able to do in this place continues to honor him. It's not about us ultimately, but we do seek to honor the Lord with intent. So here Josiah is honoring God with foresight, oversight, and insight in the process of honoring the house of God to honor God himself. 
Verse 18, Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Azaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. So Hilkiah and those... Uh, whom the king had sent, went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Toka, son of Hazra, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell that man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place. And upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, Thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before, the Lord, before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. That is is so powerful. Those declares the Lord are not idle. I I read this so often. Declares the Lord is God raising his hand and swearing by himself. Vowing by his own person that something will be true. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster I bring upon this place and its inhabitants. They brought back word to the king. This third really core element in our text today is that we are to seek the mind of the Lord in his word. Seek the mind of the Lord in his word. And to begin with, and it's incredibly simple, you have to read in order to know. They read the book of the law. Deuteronomy is not a short book. Anybody ever tried to read Deuteronomy in one sitting? Plan for plenty of time, because you're going to be there a while. But to read the book of the law in its entirety before the king, the king sets aside all the other affairs of state. And you can almost imagine what that looks like, right? Viziers coming and going, people checking in, people looking for favor, asking for court and judicial decisions and adjudications. Business of every stripe and type, besides the fact that you just want some rest on your own. But they bring the book of the law in and they read it, probably taking several hours to do so. And the king sits there and listens, and he listens with attentiveness. 
and he listens with eagerness and his response to it shows that he has heard well exactly what was going on. Now, how Josiah already knew enough to engage in the reforms that he's already started, we don't know and the scriptures don't tell us. But we do come face to face with the fact that given the opportunity to hear the law of God, he latches onto that opportunity and makes the most of it. It's so many people, even believers, don't even know the scriptures. I run into a lot of people in books and in the blogosphere who are quite confident that they know exactly what God would do on a given situation. And what they pronounce that God would do in a given situation is exactly the opposite of what God would actually do. And just this week, I read things like this. Jesus is a socialist. No, sorry. If he were alive and we could actually inquire. Now, I'm not saying he would go, oh, I'm, I'm a you know, capitalist. He's, he's above those systems. He transcends our economic systems. But everything going on in socialism is evil. Everything. Uh, it, it destroys real charity, real love for a common man by saying, no, the government is going to come take it from you by force so we can give it to other people who have wholly not earned it, and a government doesn't care about the people that it gives it to. It just does so to gain its own power. I just read an article yesterday by a mobster commenting on what's going on in our government right, right now, and he said it is far more evil than anything the mafia ever did in New York City when I was part of it. He says, at least we actually try to protect the community. But people make these statements. I'm a Christian, I know, and Jesus was a socialist. I'm like, read your Bible. You didn't get that from reading God's word. You got that from your own imagination. You imported it and imposed it upon God's word. Or name it and claim it. I saw that again this week. I'm like, why don't bad ideas ever die out? How many times do you have to refute stupidity? I already know that because I be stupid, I say, right? We do dumb things over and over again. I, I know exactly how to handle a knife. And just this week, I found myself, you know, cutting toward, I'm like, hello, that's not the way you, well, you know, I couldn't get the right angle. And therefore, I, what? Take the time to get the right angle so you don't cause yourself irreparable harm. Yeah, bad ideas don't seem to die. But no, God did not say that he is a genie in a bottle that we get to demand of him whatever we wish to demand of him. Or authenticity is holiness. I read this one in a book, and it's a book that's one of my favorite, least favorites. Okay? You know what I mean? I, I have it on my shelf, and I, the only reason I keep this book is to demonstrate that there are people out there teaching in seminaries that are ostensibly relatively conservative seminaries who are themselves absolute rank false teachers. I have hundreds of annotations in this particular book in which the guy is preaching. He even calls something the gospel of, and what he is preaching is antithetic to Scripture. But authenticity is holiness. No, authenticity is just authenticity. All it is is wearing your heart on the sleeve. And if what's inside is not holy, then what you're wearing on the outside is also not holy. So authenticity has nothing to do with holiness. An individual in Three Free Sins, that book that I was just referencing, advocates profanity and indecency and even lust because they're cool, authentic, and spiritual. No, they're not. Never have been, never will be. 
You have to read God's Word in order to know what it actually says. You have to spend time with it and seek it in order to realize what God is really telling us. And then you must believe in order to respond. The king's reaction to the book of the law is entirely the opposite, the reaction of his son, Jehoiakim. Okay? We literally have back-to-back marvelous depictions of what this means to seek the Lord. Josiah hears, and what does he immediately do? He tears his clothes, he cries out to God, and he sends someone to search for additional, the word of the Lord. We have to have divine input because we're in serious trouble. But what did his son, his son, Jehoiakim, Jeremiah 36, in the midst of Jeremiah's ministry, as Jehudi read three or four columns where Jeremiah the prophet is saying, thus saith the Lord, and Baruch, his scribe, is writing down the very words of God. And then they are taking the very word of God and giving it to Jehoiakim. And as Jehudi read three or four columns, Jehoiakim would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire, in the fire pot, until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear his garments. In other words, the king has expelled all the servants of his father because they were walking with the Lord. He's replaced them with his own yes men who are wicked. And the king's response to the word of the Lord is, it's kindling. It's kindling. It's garbage. It's yesterday's newspaper to be crumpled up and thrown away. Back-to-back kings. Yet this is what the Lord exhibits for us to show what our response ought to be and ought not to be. You must inquire in order to understand. And I highlighted that word inquire if you noticed it again. Why? Because inquire is the theme. It's back to seeking. He's looking for truth and being diligent to understand it. So the second key statement of our theme of seeking the Lord right here occurs that Josiah sent several trusted officials to find a prophetess in order to find out what the book of the law meant for them. I read it. God's word is true. We're in big trouble. What does this mean for us? And you must submit in order to be free. Now, this is completely countercultural. Submit in order to be free? No, submit makes you a slave. Yeah, you do. You have to be a slave of righteousness in order to be free. You have to be a slave of God in order to be free. Because in all other circumstances, you are bound. You are bound by Satan. You are bound by God's law. You are bound by your own sin. And all three of which are working to keep you under bondage and in darkness and in slavery to the point of death and then eternal death that follows. It's a paradox that we see all throughout scriptures. Real freedom does not come in living the life of the libertine, casting off restraint, propriety, and righteousness, but in submitting, seeking the mind of the Lord in his word. When one of my children was just one or two years old, she put her head through a railing that had just enough space for the head to fit. Has that ever happened to some of you parents? Similar things, I'm sure, at least. Well, she got stuck and couldn't pull her head back out because all it takes is a slight twist, right? And now now your chin is catching on things in the back of your head. It's too wide. And, of course, what ensues? Screaming, panic, fighting, 
bruising herself as she's just struggling and, and gra- she grabs the bars with her hands and is pushing against them and becoming more and her face is turning red and more panic is following upon the heels of that and the situation is growing worse and worse. Of course, I rushed over to her and said, stop fighting. And that worked as well as. <laughs> but you know, I'm the same way. God essentially comes up to us in his word in so many senses and says, stop fighting me. Listen to me, obey me, yield to me, believe me, trust me, rejoice in me. So many other simple things. And I go, no, I'm terrified, I'm prideful, and I just keep pushing against the bars and fighting with my, and I'm not getting out until what? Until I submit. Until I submit, and then I find out God knew what he was talking about all in the first place. And as soon as I could get my daughter quieted down just a little bit, just enough, so I could turn her head with my hands and, you know, kind of pin her ears back so they didn't get bent funny, I could slide her head out, and she was free. You must submit to the Lord in order to be free. The pursuit of our own way in life is never a way that leads to real liberty. And Josiah find that out, found that out. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, and all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Wait a minute. But Joseph was already doing the will of the Lord. And when he hears the word of the Lord, what does he do? This is why we have such an awesome opportunity every time we come into God's house. Because it's not that we have to view you know, our, all, of, all of our last week as this colossal mountain of sin. It might be, in which case, repent. But the reality is, every single time we come into the house of the Lord, even if we've been walking with the Lord, we have the opportunity to choose to obey him and seek him. Josiah was already doing the will of the Lord. He had already launched reform programs. He had already begun rebuilding the temple. He had already torn his clothes in humility and been walking with the Lord. And yet, what does he do? He takes the opportunity to seek even further obedience to his word. Let's make a covenant to obey the Lord. You're obeying the Lord. Yeah, let's make a covenant to obey the Lord. So obedience requires personal initiative that he engages in himself. It also requires personal commitment. When the king is committed to this, you can't go back without what? If you made a covenant with God, you don't go back. Or you have just added to the doom that is coming and is impending. So he has a personal initiative. He also has a personal commitment. I love the fact that his commitment also invited other people in. Come on. Judah, not just Jerusalem, Judah, And then even Israel, the northern tribes, the few scattered remnants of the land that were left, he invited in. This is fairly dark uh, and good at the same time. The darkness comes from the fact that the doom still hangs over Judah. 
the light comes from the fact that God rewards those who seek him. What you seek really does matter in life. We can't stop the doom that's coming on a nation like our own. Uh, And I don't mean to be all gloom and doom about it, but God is going to destroy America. I have no idea when and I have no idea how. Is it five years from, five minutes from now? Fifty years from now? I have no idea. That's not for me to worry about or to figure out, but I can act like Josiah. I can take up the law of the Lord myself and the character of the Lord myself and seek the Lord with my whole heart and maybe, just maybe, when enough of us do that, the Lord will say, the doom is coming, but not in your days. And if our children rise up to do the same, maybe the Lord will look at them and say, the doom is coming, but not in your days. And maybe our grandchildren, but not in your days. So we have the privilege of continuing to seek the Lord. When I was much younger, much, much younger, like five years ago, I wanted to discover a treasure on our property. Uh, no, really, it goes all the way back. We, we used to live on a creek when I was younger. We have a creek on our property now. So back in the day, we would dig all around that creek, just sure somebody had buried you know, a tre- treasure chest of gold. We found pieces of horse's bridle, shoes, leather, and other equipage at my parents' house in the mud by the creek. There's actually a well dug down there that they used for watering animals back when our whole area used to be a farm. When we moved to our current home, we found old glass bottles, scraps of metal, and a lot of barbed wire scattered throughout the woods, but never anything of value. Kind of a bummer. You know, you you always think, bought 10 acres somewhere, the guy put something that's worth, you know, nope, sorry. Rusty barbed wire is not really worth unearthing. But then I thought about it. You know the reality is everything that we seek in life is rusty barbed wire. Even if I'd found gold, you know what it really is worth in light of eternity? Rusty barbed wire. What we seek determines what we will find. If we seek things of this earth, we get things of this earth. If we seek the Lord we find his favor. Father, we're thankful for this beautiful testimony that we had. We need encouragement like this because sometimes it doesn't seem like the little things that we can do for you and even the simplicity of just following you from day to day has any real value. We're not changing the course of our nation. We're not radically altering the events of history. And yet a testimony of a passage like today's reminds us that if we seek you, we find you. And finding you is a great treasure. And maybe, just maybe, in the midst of finding you, we will find an influence and an opportunity for good that really will ring down the pages of history because it will affect our children, grandchildren, neighbors, community, and possibly even nation for the cause of Jesus Christ. May we glorify you this week, and may we find your favor in it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.